Welcome back to The Delve. This is a special episode, a continuation of my conversation with Gwerlene Joso, a proud Haitian-American and executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance. Since we last spoke, the Biden administration has deported thousands of Haitians to Port-au-Prince. Most of the people dropped on the tarmac have not lived in Haiti for years. Many have been living in Brazil and Mexico since the 2010 earthquake. They have no family or resources in Port-au-Prince, and the U.S. government has given them 25 bucks, not enough for a night in a hotel in the capital, with no other option of recourse. Today you'll hear the rest of my conversation with Gordon Joseph on the migrant crisis and the situation in Haiti. I want to ask a question of the earthquake specifically, if you can answer. And this earthquake, it was greater in magnitude than the one from 2010, 11 years ago, but it seems to have a significantly smaller death toll. Did it hit like a lesser populated area? Exactly. So okay. Port-au-Prince is extremely overpopulated and the majority of the structures were literally shinty towns where people lived in extremely poorly constructed structures. So that created the amount of people that we saw. We lost over 250,000 people. When I was doing research for this episode and I saw that, I literally sent a message on Slack to the team saying 200,000 people. <laughs> what? Yes. Insane amount of people because of the overpopulation in the capital. In the South, it's a less populated area. So that is why you don't see, thank God, as many people died. But the entire area is flattened to the ground because construction in Haiti is made for storms, for hurricanes, not for earthquakes. And I can go back to, you know, my great-grandfather and my father. I remember telling me a story when I was young that there was an earthquake in Haiti over 100 years ago that kind of was really bad. But the reality is, if you are younger than 100 years old, you are not familiar with earthquake in Haiti because earthquake didn't happen in Haiti for over 100 years. So people were building, not according to earthquake, but they were building to protect themselves from um, hurricanes, hurricanes and storms because right. that is something that happened every single year in the country. Then if we're talking about shanty towns, these are areas where engineers coming by and monitoring the you know, building and seeing if it's up to code. These are folks who are just trying to make a home for themselves with whatever materials they have. And so they're, you know, obviously going to be the first folks who are hurt by hurricanes and, you know, God forbid, earthquakes. Absolutely. So. Actually, one of our call to actions is asking people who are saying that they are standing with Haiti, the people of Haiti during this earthquake. What I tell them, you know, we have massive earthquakes in California. I live in California. Earthquakes in Thailand, earthquakes in Taiwan. Why can't we, when we say that we support Haiti, why don't we put the infrastructure to help people mm. build support? Now that we know, not if another earthquake happened to Haiti, but when another earthquake happened in Haiti, make sure that we have building codes that are making sure that people's lives are protected. 
making sure that we build roads, we build schools, we build hospitals when people find themselves in those situations, whether it is man-made disasters or natural disasters, they have places to actually get to shelter, to be able to get to a hospital, to be able to get the help that they need. Why must we continue this cycle of, oh, we stand with Haiti, where we know it is not true. We are tired of all this lip service. We want true allyship, true friends to Haiti. We want the United States to back up what they want to do. We want them to be true friends, to stop deportations to Haiti, to provide protection for asylum seekers who are coming. We are asking the United States to provide humanitarian parole for Haitians who have been stuck at the U.S.-Mexico border for the past four or five years. We want to make sure that they provide support for schooling, hospitals. That's what we need. It's so unfortunate that Haiti has kind of been robbed by some of these big organizations, whether it's the Red Cross, the UN trying to step in and support Haiti. The aftermath of the 2010 earthquake, and maybe you can answer this. <laughs> you mentioned the UN, and I'm only laughing because the UN brought cholera Haiti and never acknowledged and never took accountability for doing so where thousands of people actually died from cholera after the earthquake, yet there's still no reparation, no apologies that the UN is responsible for what happened. So can you tell us who should we be supporting? What are some organizations that we can trust to help with this latest natural disaster in Haiti? There's a list of different organizations that I have seen on social media. I am not personally involved with those organizations. However, a lot of people say that they have been doing good work. Definitely, we are asking for direct assistance for the people on the ground. For example, what we at the Haitian Bridge Alliance decided to do is not to repeat the same thing that happened in 2010 when we literally accepted donations. That's when people do their screen cleaning. Let's give all of our used clothes to send to Haiti. And we decided this time we are going to do things different. We are going to make cash assistance to directly impacted people on the ground so that they can use that to bury their loved ones relocate, find shelter, be able to buy their food, water with dignity, because we are tired of throwing a cup of rice and canned beans while people are driving, just throwing that over to the survivors of the earthquake. Like a gentleman who came to ask for asylum a couple of years ago, the United States refused his asylum, charged him $30,000 bond, which he could not pay for, and in turn deported him back to Haiti. And the only family he had in Haiti who was able to receive him was his sister. Unfortunately, during this earthquake, the sister, her husband, her two children all died during the earthquake. And the only way that the gentleman survived is because he had already gone outside to tend to their garden. He's sending the money directly to him so he can bury his loved ones, 
find a shelter and be able to hopefully relocate, but also be able to get food so that he can survive the next couple of weeks while we are looking at how we can support post-search and rescue for long term. What is the refugee situation like in Haiti? And are people able to get out right now? And how is the United States responding to that? The Secretary of Homeland Department, under the command of President Biden, told the Haitian people that if they try to leave, they will be intercepted and returned. After the assassination, literally two days before the earthquake, the United States sent over 135 people, asylum seekers, including pregnant women, and children younger than two years old to Haiti. And those people became part of the people impacted by the earthquake. So we are calling on the Biden administration to stop all deportations to Haiti. They said that there will be no deportation. However, we are already starting to hear chatters that a lot of our clients who are currently being held in immigration prisons as asylum seekers, as refugees, that they might be getting ready to get deported. There was a lot of criticism of the Biden administration for upholding some other immigration policies from the former president. And you were actually quite instrumental in the Biden administration changing that. Do you want to talk about what that was and how you accomplished that? Oh, no, they haven't changed any of that. We have been fighting since January the 20th with the current administration to remove some of the most cruel policies that the previous administration started. And the majority of the people who have been deported have been deported under the guise of Title 42. The win that we actually are proud to say is the TPS, the Temporary Protected Status mm-hmm. for Haitians already in the country. People were here without documents. Mm-hmm. After the earthquake in 2010, President Obama added TPS for Haiti, giving protection to about 60,000 Haitians. 10,000 of them fled the United States when President Trump became into power because they were afraid and they went to Canada. So out of the 60,000, I think probably 50,000 TPS recipients were still in the country. But what we were asking of President Biden and his administration is to have a new designation for Haiti in view of the recent political turmoils. And it was a really hard battle that we led, but we are happy to celebrate that win with over 150,000 Haitians. And the reason why we wanted to just be more than the people who already had TPS was because we know people who were asylum seekers, refugees who came to the United States whether after 2010 or who were here but afraid to step out of the shadows. Because when you are undocumented, the fear that you carry every day is unbearable. 
and it's not something you can talk to to your friends it's a shameful space to be in if you are undocumented now over 150,000 patients will be eligible for that protection but we continue to push and fight to get permanent protection for Haitians and other immigrant communities. But we at the Haitian Brig Alliance, we focus on Black immigrants from the Caribbean and from Africa. I apologize. I got the TPS status mixed up with the other title that was brought in from the former administration. <laughs> I think it's a good opportunity for us to clarify, right? Right, right. Trump actually terminated TPS when he came into power. That's when he talked about we don't want people from countries like right. Haiti and yeah. African countries to come here, but wanted people from Norway to come over here. Right. He was talking about family chain migration as if his family is not part of the chain migration he was talking about. You know, right. when when his wife came in here and then applied for her sister and then applied for her parents and then applied for everyone to come in, it is called family reunification. But when people who look like you and me, we do the same thing, it's called chain migration, chain migration. Right? Right, right? Because then we are unwanted. We do not want the browning of America. We do not want to get more Black people here. His whole idea was to get people who look like his wife from countries like his wife to come in and be able to do the same thing that other people do, but change the name to make it more plausible, right? If you can whitewash it, then it's good. As long as you can put a white face on it, you can change the name and make it pretty. Oh, America. I like to, in these interviews, asking folks something that makes them hopeful or something that they're optimistic about. You spoke earlier about some of the civil groups that are on the ground and the young folks that could provide great leadership, especially those in the next generation. I feel like that would be something that would make me hopeful, but perhaps you can talk about something that makes you hopeful yourself. I can share a couple of stories with you. I have two young men, one from Cameroon, one from Haiti. The one from Haiti is LGBTQ. He had to escape because, you know, he couldn't survive. And the one from Cameroon escaped the armed conflict is in, in his country. He was in prison and was able to leave, made the journey to South and Central America, spent five months on the journey, barely escaped. They were imprisoned as asylum seekers. And then on top of that, they charge you money so that if you don't have the money, you can either stay in prison indefinitely or get deported. The young man, the LGBTQ member from Haiti, we paid $8,500 to get him released after being in prison for 11 months. The young man from Cameroon, he was able to win his asylum once. So two weeks ago, the young man from Cameroon graduated law school. So that's a young man that I met when I was bringing humanitarian assistance for Black migrants in Tijuana. He wow. came in, was in immigration prison for 10 months. And then when he came out, we picked him up and then supported him. And he graduated law school, Chapman University, two weeks ago. And then the other gentleman from Haiti just started 
a program where he will be able to start his own business at the end of the program. So those stories, those realities give me hope because we are seeing the result of our work. We are seeing how people are able to survive all of this painful journeys and hardship and coming out on the other side. That is what keeps me going. And back home in Haiti, as we mentioned before, is the fact that I know that we have leaders who are standing up against corruption, who are standing up and want to protect their communities, want to make sure that people get a prosperous future. Every time I meet a person, they tell me their story. The basic thing in it is hope. Hope got them through. Hope kept them going. The hope that they will be able to survive, they'll be able to provide for themselves, they'll be able to be better tomorrow. That's the hope that I carry with me. Grilling, I thank you and I thank the Haitian Bridge Alliance for the great work that you guys do. I said earlier before, I actually even started recording, you're out here doing the Lord's work. <laughs> I really mean it. You are a hero. So thank you so much for coming on to the Dell. I really appreciate it. We ask our listeners to continue engaging on behalf of the Haitian people. President Biden and Vice President Harris need to know that we, the American voters, will not be placated by a quote remedy of the border crisis that is rooted in anti-Blackness, violence, and dehumanization. The Haitian people deserve better.